Did you miss your chance to get the early bird tickets last week for the Mumbrella Finance Marketing Summit? Well, it's not too late as the early bird tickets have been extended until the 1st of July. With over seven sessions led by the most influential thinkers and leaders in the finance industry, covering topics such as tighter compliance regulations, digital privacy updates driven by Apple's ecosystem, and the impact of the latest federal budget, if you want to get ahead, you and your team would not want to miss out on this event. Book now to save $200 or more at mumbrella.com.au slash finance. Hello and welcome back to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jasmine and today Halfdome introduces unlimited pay leave on a 12-month trial. A lot of action in the comments section so the indie agency joins us so we can ask, is it genuine or a hiring gimmick? We'll also take a look at some other initiatives as the talent war rumbles on. Then, new comms minister Michelle Rowland rejects the Royal Commission on Media Ownership. We ask why. Finally, a sit-down in Cannes with Executive Chairman of S4 Capital, Sir Martin Sorrell, where he discusses not making the perfect ad, Holdco's struggling to integrate, toothpaste, recession, succession, and his short-lived DJ career. Joining me today for the action is acting managing editor Andrew Banks. Hey, Banksy. Hey, Callum. How are you going? I'm very good, mate. Good to see you again. And journalist Kalila Welch. How are you doing, Kalila? I'm well, thanks, Cal. Nice to have you back in the country. Yeah, good to be back. What a, uh, a whirlwind week away. Well, two weeks away, but week in Cannes. That was um, certainly an eye-opening experience. <laughs> yeah. Good to have you back. Do you have any um, any main takeaways from the event that you'd like to share? Um, yeah, a couple. I think I think the main thing was just the um, the extravagance of it all for a first timer. I mean, um, you know, as as we'll hear later on from um, Sir Martin Sorrell touching on as well. I think there, there was a huge stark kind of contrast between inside the palais, where it was very much sort of creatively focused. And then all the sort of events and everything that comes with it outside, which was very sort of, uh, it seemed like a new age for, I guess, what you can consider creativity with all the, the main tech players from around the world there. Um, another one, maybe on the work side of things, there was a lot of actual uh, genuine purpose work. Um, I guess some of it being called into question as is usually the case on the actual effectiveness of it. Um Funnily enough, the effectiveness campaign for creativity was one of the the um I was reading one of the few categories which actually saw a major rise in um, entries this year. I think it was up around eighty three percent, whereas overall the actual um, entrance for awards were down uh, year on year. Um, Khalil, did you kind of have? Any takeaways from the big winners? There were there were fewer this year than past years for Australian agencies. On the note of purpose work um, or purpose full work, I should say, uh, we obviously saw Leo Burnett come away with a pretty big win for their one house to save many for Suncorp, um, where they had obviously gone and with some consultation with various experts built a home that was resistant to um, various climate events in light of the increasing prevalence of climate disasters in Australia. So they won the Grand Prix for innovation um, and the Silver Lion for PR as well. They were pretty wrapped with that. We also saw um, 
A few other wins, as you said, not as many as previous years, but Howitson and Co. actually took away probably the most amount of wins. Um, they took three silvers and a bronze for their rejected ales campaign for Matilda Bay. And we also had a couple of golds for Ogilvy Australia, for Emmy Rest Towns and DDB Sydney um, for the ad break championship for Volkswagen. Yeah, well, interesting. The, the I guess the model Suncorp very... Uh, beneficial trip for them over there and in a few weeks time at Mumbrella 360 you'll hear CMO of Suncorp uh, Mim Haysom talking on stage on the Mumbrella cast live about how their agency model is progressing but it was interesting Terry Savage former chairman of the Lions and Australian took to took to LinkedIn this week to discuss um, or I guess make the point of the the drastic fall in in Lions for Australian agencies over the past couple of festivals um you know maybe uh, there's there's many different reasons to this maybe uh one to explore in another episode anyway moving on across 2021 we saw a wide range of cultural initiatives implemented across australian agencies and media companies as the scramble for talent took focus many of them though appeared as though they were just catching up to an industry standard in one of the more interesting ones that we've seen, indie media agency Half Dome has given its staff unlimited pay leave on a 12-month trial basis. The article prompted quite a few questions in the Mumbrella comments section, so to answer some of those, we can welcome Half Dome's Chief People Officer Lisa Lee and recently promoted General Manager Catherine Smith. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us, guys. Thank you. Uh, so I, I guess the first one would just be a kind of basic. How, how can you, I guess, ensure that this is a genuine approach to, you know, giving your staff a better life rather than a sort of headline-grabbing gimmick? Yeah, we saw the um, the comments, Callum, and, it, you know, it really just baffles us that there's this sentiment that it could be a gimmick. But every second day, you guys would know this being an umbrella, there's an article in um, the press about turnover and burnout we're facing as an industry. Um, I guess to us, like, this is really just an evolution of our flexibility practices that we've already created um, because, put it simply, like, if we don't try new things, the alternative is standing still or just getting out of the way, and we're not here for that. So basically from day dot, halftime has um, already been about, you know, challenging ourselves to find new and better ways of working. We don't need to prove that it's um, a gimmick um, or that it's not a gimmick um, because it's an experiment, and we've come out quite openly and said that, and we hope to learn from it. Um, I guess... Something you should know about Halftime is the way we roll out experiments is with all of these change management practices in place and our whole team is on board with how we create those. Um, and as I said, it's really an evolution of our flexibility practices. It's um, not something completely brand new to us. I think the thing as well, just to add to, to Lisa there, guys, is that we one of the points of sharing this publicly is so that we can share learnings that we're finding along the way and hopefully have a dialogue with the industry. You know, we're willing to kind of test and learn in these areas and it's obviously already created a lot of conversation. You know, how do we make that productive conversation? How do we share if it works, if it doesn't? You know, how do we kind of be a little bit of an incubator um, amongst the industry to kind of, you know, share the learnings from something like this as well? I guess something that, well, a big part of the industry is billable hours and those kind of extra hours or something charged directly to the client. How how would something like billable hours work? 
Yeah, it's a really great question. Um, I think the first thing that we we want to really emphasise is that this isn't an overnight sort of hype piece or something that we've just cooked up in the last couple of weeks. It's been six months in the making. Um, like Lisa said, our team's been consulted on it. We involve our clients in um, a lot of these uh, kind of test and learn experiences as well. We have quite a test and learn mentality throughout the agency. Um, in terms of the how it works with the little hours, FTAs and what have you is kind of a few different different ways that we've looked at it. So first of all, we build capacity into people's roles to cover leave periods. Um, and also our FTA allocation is based on roles, not individuals. So we have the ability to cover roles during leave periods, whether that is vacation, illness, or any type of leave really. Um, and we continue to focus and prioritise on those outcomes for clients. And in any circumstance where those outcomes aren't being met, and things are going to be reviewed and changed and, you know, adapted in line with that. So in that respect, we'll take the same approach that we currently take in terms of planning and managing coverage. Uh, it's important to note, as Lisa said, that this, this is one part of a broader flexibility uh, policy that we have in place with many different elements of it. And we've already seen some team members start to take advantage of using a combination of those things. So, for example, taking a few weeks holiday, and then working a couple of weeks from overseas to extend that family time, which has been particularly important over the last couple of years for, for people, you know, who weren't born in Australia and this family is not in Australia. I think that's the benefit of having um, it co-created. The team are already wedded to the success of it. So as Cass said, they're using a, a multitude of different flexibility practices to make sure that they're there for their team and they're there for their client. Uh, and with the new policy, um, does, I, I guess a question that a lot of people in the comments um, as well as myself would have, based on the fact that, you know, with this industry, depending on resourcing, depending on, you know, different pressures with client projects, it can be difficult to take leave sometimes. Um, so is leave still going to accrue under this policy? You know, if people are taking less than the normal amount of, you know, say less than four weeks of leave in the year? Um, it would be illegal for us not to let people to take leave. Everyone is absolutely accruing their national standard um, leave. So there's there's no fear in that. Everyone has four weeks entitlement. Um, what happens is um, once you've taken that and that's exhausted, you basically tap into as much unlimited leave as you feel you need to maintain a balance between work and life. Now, if you're the type of person who just likes to sit in a job and accrue leave, by all means, go and do that. Um, but our team agreed with us that people generally um, need about three weeks minimum leave a year to feel really rested and engaged. Yeah, great. That's good to know that it's like an add-on as opposed to being, you know, a complete switch because I think some people raise concerns, you know, obviously not knowing that point that, you know, what happens if you don't take leave or much leave in a year or you're taking less than the limit and then, you know, you finish up at a job and you don't have that payout that people normally have if they haven't taken all their leave. So that is um, really great to know. Um Another point I guess I would ask to that, um, and I guess you have, have somewhat already answered it, but how do you make sure that it is fair between different staff members? You know, some members may have more capacity or more reason to be taking leave than others. So how do you kind of keep the equity in with this policy? Yeah, it's a really great um, question you raise. And I think um, what we learned out of um, establishing flexibility practices um, is this continual feedback loop that we moved into um, change management. Um, and so we have that in place to ensure equity. We also have full team buy-in. So it wasn't, you know, Kath and I sitting in a room going one day, hey, wouldn't it be fun if we made it unlimited leave? The whole team has been creating this with us for six months. 
So they're very aware of how they need to support each other and um, what equity looks like um, to the point where they're now checking in with each other going, are you going to take some leave? I might take some then. Um, and it's been really impressive to see the behaviours that actually come out and the, the team orientation. Yeah, and we've seen that across multiple um, kind of policies that we've put in place across this this flexibility framework, really. We've had the same discussions for um, what do you call working hours, you know, call meeting hours. Um, we have uh, meeting-free days and what have you. And they've chopped and changed in the last mm. kind of year, year and a half, yeah. really, as we've sort of learned from that, you know, particular days don't work Um particular hours need to be extended or contracted or what have you. Um, so it's definitely not a, a set and forget uh, situation for anyone in the team. And um, you, you kind of mentioned before about the, the sort of outcomes necessary for your clients. Was And I know this was a collaborative effort with your team. Was there sort of any consultation with the clients that you would be implementing something like this? I know it's it's very trust-based, um, as you guys have said, and uh, you, one would assume that no one will be taking the piss um, but, you know, there could be a situation where maybe some some people in the team who are working on particular clients want to take more holiday than someone who's working on another client. Uh, did that come into consideration? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think... Uh, we we shared all of this with our clients and like we said we've our clients have sort of been on this flexibility journey with us over the last couple of years in particular um, they were all really enthusiastic and it really was a continuation of those flexible practices that we've been developing since the beginning um, and it's not you know just in the leave space it's also in the mental health space a lot of which we share with them um, and we know that the clients that we work with, like the way that we kind of experiment in this space and we, we push the envelope in this space and we attract clients that like that approach. We also um, get feedback from them where they, they see the benefit of uh, a team that's able to kind of take control of how they work um, and engage on those more motivational areas around delivering outcomes and really focusing on, on outcomes. And um, we were talking before about, you know, if, if somebody goes on leave and it breaks, the agency we've probably got a bigger problem going on there and, and unlimited leave is going to be you know something that's probably not right in that circumstance um and when i say that we've got it nailed you know we face the same challenges the whole industry is at the moment with you know everything going on and the talent shortage and and what have you but because we're agile and we can keep going in this space we're going to keep trying in this space as well but from the client perspective you know we really focus on building strong partnerships with them and a lot of our clients we've had for a number of years and working towards those outcomes, they're familiar with those test and earn efforts that we've made in that space um, around some of those, you know, features that we've already talked about. And um, they, they'll tell us, they do tell us if it's not working and the client experience is being impacted. And that's going to be part of what we have to react to in this particular trial as well. I like your um, question around taking the piss because it's actually, you know, one of the first ones that comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if we went into um, this with the mentality that um, we were creating practices where there were going to be people taking the piss and then creating practices for the people taking the piss, then we'd be operating from a place of fear. Um, and so we choose not to do that and we choose to trust people. And where things don't yeah. work, we change them. I definitely think it's interchangeable on both sides, you know, the, the the people in your agency don't want to feel, I guess, scared that they're taking too much and at the same time you don't want to feel like they're, you know, they're running off and kind of taking advantage of it. So I, I guess, you know, trust comes into that. And the same thing you said with your clients, 
I guess from the same part, if they are your clients, you would hope that they share the same values as you. So that's a good point you've made there. hundred uh, percent. And just off the back of what Callum was saying as well, um, one of the comments, one of the other points that we received in the comments was that there are some studies that indicate similar programs like this um, internationally have seen staff members take less leave overall or, you know, um, in some cases, you know, they'll tap out kind of at the five-week or so mark. How are you going to ensure that staff are actually taking the leave that they need and taking a proper break? Yeah, um, we saw that and I'm glad people are reading up on it. We've also done that research and um, made sure that we've built that into our guidelines. Um, I think what you've um, really tapped on there is that people love clarity and they love knowing what the guidelines are that they should operate within. So we worked to create this as a team so there was like a real alignment on um, what does good look like, you know, um, without going too prescriptive on it because we don't know the answer. It's an experiment, right? And we're all experimenting together. Um, we're also not the first to offer this in the world, so we've taken a heap of learnings from other businesses um, who saw that happen. As a team, we decided that um, we needed to um, have an expectation with each other that was a minimum of three weeks or so annual leave is needed um, and that we expect people to be taking that to feel rested. You have the choice to um, or not to. Mm. And I think that people's minds, and it came through in the comments as well, often go to the most extreme scenarios. So, you know, I'm going to take six months off. I'm going to do, you know, travel Europe for ages. Like amazing if you can... <laughs> that's yeah, an option for you to yeah. do but um you know we, we do um there's considerations around like the length of you know consecutive time that's realistic and when does that become a sabbatical for example and all of those options are things that are you know open for for discussion as part of the learning in this process and you know where is there potentially I think one of the key things we'll want to learn is where is a little bit more framework and boundary potentially needed because like Lisa said people people do like a level of you know framework around things like this well, um, Catherine and Lisa, thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to hearing how the, uh, how the trial goes in a year's time. Thank you. We're looking Thanks, forward guys. to sharing our learnings with you. Yeah, can't Hopefully wait. before then. Very interesting indeed, that policy there. Well, yeah, as we said, look forward to seeing how that plays out. Kalila, uh, obviously so many to mention over the last year. Any other than the sort of, you know, catching up to industry standard ones, any that kind of stood out to you in particular? Yeah, so as you mentioned, there's been a lot over the past kind of six to 12 months. I think the biggest ones, you know, generally speaking for me, I think the most progressive policies we're seeing here are the ones that are looking at the issues that haven't previously been covered by a traditional, you know, leave systems. So we see, um, we've seen a couple of policies come in providing paid leave for gender affirmation, for domestic and family violence, um, fertility treatment, as well as for miscarriage. So some of the, the I feel more impressive ones that I've seen or, or um, the bigger kind of more impactful policies I've seen, um, Publicis obviously introduced a whole bevy of new policies across all of those um, different topics that I just mentioned, as well as introducing their Work Your World program um, at the end of last year too, which gave staff the opportunity to work from home up to six weeks a year anywhere in the world. So that was designed obviously um, with their staff who have loved ones overseas in mind so that they could go home and visit family without having to take holidays. Um, 
Another really impressive policy we saw was also at the end of last year with Havas Group having introduced um, 10 days of leave for um, the same kind of issues, so pregnancy loss, um, adoption, surrogacy, gender affirmation um, surgeries or other consultation to do with that, um, and family and domestic violence, as well as um, paid parental leave, 12 weeks of paid parental leave, plus they were going to give, they were going to, give families allowances for the first 12 weeks of back to work um, to put towards childcare, which I haven't seen many other agencies doing. But, uh, yeah, a lot of the policies are, as you said, kind of bringing up to the standard. And I do think that moving forward these kind of um, types of leave, I guess, will become more of a standard and we'll see a lot more agencies yeah, the, bring this the, out. The childcare one's really interesting, Kalila. I think that's something that is, is a huge issue um, in the industry and w- wider still. I think that that needs to certainly be more considered and thought through as a policy on top of all the ones that you've just mentioned. Yeah, it'll be interesting, the um, the back-to-work kind of approach, which is going to differ. You know, uh, recently we've seen, of course, uh, Tesla forcing their employees back full-time and then on the complete other side on the podcast the other week, we had Matt Baxter talking about how he's closed all of Huge's offices globally bar one. Uh, along the grapevine last week, I heard that Omnicom is uh, is kind of making it mandatory for their staff to be back in the office four days a week over in Europe and the UK. Um, so, yeah, th- those are certainly all interesting points. But, again, you'd kind of um, hope that they do a little bit of uh, – I guess playing around with it to make sure that it suits everyone before um, kind of cracking on with anything. Cal, the base, um, the base at the moment is about two to three days a week in the industry. Um, the creative industries are very clear that they want to get as many people back in the office for as many days a week because it actually helps to uh, for them to sort of collaborate and to gauge whether their creative work is working or not and it's a lot harder to do that through zoom and and through emails so there are certain industry leaders that want to have more people come back more time and then there's other ones that want that flexibility so it is changing and it is adapting and it's it's quite fluid coming up next michelle roland the new comms minister rejects a media ownership royal commission On Sunday, the AFR reported that the new communications minister, Michelle Rowland, confirmed to the masthead that the new government believed a royal commission into media ownership isn't warranted, despite the Senate committee last year recommending one. Our view is that a royal commission is not warranted, she told the AFR. However, it's important to continue to monitor the status of media concentration, not for its own sake, but to identify those areas in Australia, particularly in suburban and regional areas that unfortunately risk becoming news deserts. Khalil, this was a pretty big focus for us last year, covered extensively with the campaign being led by former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. Uh, Do we know any more about the reason behind the decision to not look into a media diversity commission? Yeah, so my understanding is the basis of it is that Roland plans to rely more heavily on the communications department within the government as well as the ACMA to keep an eye on the issue of media ownership and concentration and, as you said, continue to watch how the situation evolves. Again, in speaking to the AFR, she also 
added that the outcome here needs to be about the consumers. It needs to be about ensuring people have access to local news that support local jobs and ecosystems in which people feel connected. And that's the approach that she plans to take. Um, It is in line with earlier sentiments from Labor during the election campaign, with Albo having said earlier in April to The Australian that he didn't see a case for Rudd's proposal to establish an inquiry into the into News Corp or other media companies, and that there was no plan to revisit or consider it, um, consider any other media regulation. Um, and Roland also added at the time that a free pe- press, a free press, was a cornerstone of democracy, and Labor did not support further media inquiries or new statutory or a new statutory body to regulate print media. Um, she did acknowledge that there were issues with media concentration, um, but she said the problem isn't a lack of inquiry or should I say I've already said it too many times don't I the problem isn't a lack of inquiry or ideas the problem is the lack of best practice implementation of a backlog of recommendations that already exist um and Cal you spoke with senate with senate committee chair Sarah Hanson Young earlier today what did she have to say yeah so uh, as we sort of mentioned that was um I guess suggested or that was the conclusion that it should go ahead last year and um yeah, Sarah said that it's it's short sighted and and lacks courage. The decision to to not push ahead with it. Um, she continued, "This is a new parliament, and there's a growing support across the parliament for fixing our media laws, making regulations fit for purpose, and ensuring media diversity. Our community deserves better than politicians that are too scared to take on the media and tech giants, leaving them with no local news and inaccurate and poor reporting." So, pretty strong words there, Banksy. Um, I guess just uh, just a quick overview. How concentrated is Australia's media? Things have gotten worse over the fa- last five years, haven't they? Very much so, Cal. It, it stems back to 2017 where changes to the Broadcasting Services Act, it removed that two out of three cross-media control rule and the 75% audience reach rule. And that was part of the media ownership laws back then. And that was kind of like what's been happening with the watering down of the sports anti-siphoning laws for streaming services. The passing of the legislation allowed for the $4 billion merger between Fairfax and Nine in 2018. And then since then, News Corp controls about two-thirds of the metro print mastheads and, and online news sites in Australia. So it is very concentrated at this stage. And despite a specific commission, could we see any policy kind of on the horizon to actually curb this concentration? Just moving back to what Kalila mentioned in the quote from Roland, that they there are measures there. They are they they include things like stopping the spread of misinformation, making sure that ACMA steps up and actually does its job, preserving the ABC, SBS, and Newswise, such as AAP, are very important. The NBN needs to remain public um, and available in regional areas. They have to really look after free-to-air rights of TV, First Nation content, multiculturalism voices. And then this also goes back to your earlier discussion in the podcast to do with diversity of opinion and getting the right staff at the media companies to bring that culture through. Moving on to the next uh, section. Up next, we have Sir Martin Sorrell in Cannes. Just a little disclaimer before we crack into this one. It was recorded in a outdoor cafe setting in Cairns, so there's a lot of street noise and works going on, but otherwise uninterrupted. Here it is. 
So Martin Sorrell, thank you very much for joining us today on the Mumbrella Cast. Pleasure. So, um, first off, how's your week been? Has it uh, been eye-opening at all? Uh, I don't know about eye-opening. I think probably more of the more of the same. More, uh, I yeah. mean, similar to pre-COVID. I don't think it's materially changed. Probably it's a bit more intense. I think entries are down. I think numbers of people numbers of people here. Are, I don't know where it is in comparison to pre-COVID. Do you know where it is in, in comparison in, to In that? terms of entries? Yeah. Uh, no, no think, entries are down. Yeah. The number of people. Oh, I think it's more this year. No, no, it seems more intense. Yeah. So maybe it's revenge spending uh, after COVID. Uh, a lot of people saying that people have planned, obviously, in different circumstances, in, in different times. If we were going to have this conversation in January the 1st, you know, we would have had, thanks very much, on January the 1st, probably would have had a very different outlook to today. I mean, since January the 1st, you've had withdrawal of COVID stimulus, you've obviously interest rates rising, even in Australia. Yeah. Uh, you've had inflation, obviously, uh, on skates. You've had uh, the war, tragedy of the war. And then, uh, last but not least, You've had Chinese intensified Chinese lockdowns, zero COVID policy. So all of that together, plus general concerns about big issues like climate change and sustainability. I think the world's a different place to what it was six months ago. But this is planned. This is a conference that's planned a year ago. It's very tech dominated. I don't think it's any more a creative conference. It's a, you know, at, at, at best, it's a creative confidence conference probably confidence too, uh, driven by da data and technology. I mean, you look at you know, the Amazon presence here is huge. There's even some talk of uh, an Apple presence here, which is unusual. Uh, but essentially, it's dominated by the platforms, by Alphabet, by Meta, by Amazon. Uh, less obviously from China this year, Russia non-existent. Obviously, Ukrainian presence here, probably one of the highlights, if not the highlight, was Zelensky on the first morning. He managed you know, the great communicator. Yeah. Um, so I would say, I would say, on balance, um, probably you're right. It's probably a bit more intense, uh, given you know, we're back after two or three years. Uh, but I really wonder. Uh, you know, when one thinks about the investment that people are making here, it's pretty, pretty huge. Uh, a huge number of uh, popular music events here, concerts, DJs. You yourself music, were on the DJ decks the I other was, night. Yeah, I had this, my meme of that. I did that and then retired early. <laughs> um, no, so so I think um, it, it's a good way of getting people together. Uh, it's a great sort of networking ex experience, not dissimilar to other conferences of similar nature, uh, but it's very intense from from that point of view. I think probably there should continue to be a re-evaluation about whether it's the right thing at the right time in the right place. Um, but, you know, it's interesting, it's part of Essential, and Essential is being split into two. You know, a tech data business in, for America, listed in America, is it? The, I, I, and then an exhibition business. And it may be that there'll be a different owner of this, and that different owner will look at it in a slightly different way, we'll see. 
it's interesting. I was just having a coffee with um, Joao Flores and we kind of spoke about, and it's similar to what you spoke about in your session yesterday, that inside the Palais is the, the festival of creativity and then outside it's almost non-existent. Do you think, I mean, this is the first festival since you brought together Mighty Hive and Media Monks. Do you think it's kind of come at a perfect time in this sort of growth for what Media Monks is in terms of how it relates to creativity? Hopefully we're on on the cutting edge in in advance of things. I mean, we're purely focused on the digital side of the industry, which is, you know, if there is any growth knocking around, it's going to be on the digital side, it's not going to be on the analogue side. So we're in the right place, uh, probably, as you suggest, at the right time, and we combine... Uh, content, which is the biggest part of our business, about 60%, with data and analytics and digital media, which is about 30 And then the other 10% is in tech services. And we've recently expanded in tech services through Zomoga and 3-in-1. That actually is the fastest growing part of the business, with, with content and data and digital media roughly growing at the same, at the same rate, both strongly but tech service even more so and you see that sort of borne out a little bit by the Accenture results yesterday although they're a bit opaque because they they don't give a, an organic growth rate uh, figure I think they were up 24% but that includes deals mm-hmm. so they don't break out an organic growth rate so I saw the indication from analysts we had dinner with last night was roughly half and half so it looks like their organic growth rate is around 13 or 14 percent and 13 or 14 percent from from deals uh, their probably deal rate has, has lessened a bit I think they've been a little bit less active um, but they don't they're not called out by analysts or investors to show their their organic growth um, so I think um, you know tech services obviously really so maybe uh, it, there, there is a lot of chat about uh, whether clients should integrate everything they do whether the agencies should integrate everything they do. I mean, the holding companies have difficulty in integrating. You see Dentsu here talk about Dentsu 1, but it's not one. They exclude, continue to exclude uh, other parts of their operation like Merkel from it. So it's, you know, half pregnant, if you like, Uh, but it's the right direction. It's a bit like Publicis Power of One. You walk into the reception and you find 23 different names. Um, but you know, it is at least um, mentally in the right, in the right, going in the right direction. Um, but they're trying to integrate their offer. Um, our own view is that you should look at digital separately because the, the, the demands and techniques that are needed in that area um, are, are very different. It's very database uh, that's driving the insight. Uh, and then you're you're not doing it in a perfectly formed way. You're doing it in an iterative way, so you don't produce the perfect ad. You you produce Netflix 1.6 million different creative executions. You don't use them all, but you work out you know, what what people's likes and dislikes are, or try to, and then pump out content, serve content that they, uh, we think are, they're interested in and measure the results and then continuously improve. So gone are the days where you have a perfectly formed 
TV commercial after thirty-second TV commercial after three months. Mm-hmm. It's a much more iterative process. So, so yeah, I think you know we're we're in the right place at the right time. You know, we talk about winning the decade, um, and I think we made a good start. You know, we have eight clients, Whoppers or somebody somebody in Brazil uh, called them Whoopers last <laughs> week. Um, so the Whoopers, uh, we have eight. We've not identified another nineteen that we think potentially. That's $20 million plus of revenue per year. Uh, we've identified another 19 uh, that we think have the potential to, and we're aiming by the end of our current three-year plan, which is 24. And we're planning to, to double the size of the company in three years, so that's a 25% organic growth rate, which is what we're signaling to the market for this year. So. Um, yeah, I think we're in the right place at the right time. But the industry, you know, the big thing, you know, if you said what's the biggest point of discussion here, it's, you know, is there going to be a recession? And you have Mark Pritchard at one end quite rightly saying double up, which is nice to hear. I, I hate I hate the impression of double down because it seems as though yeah. you're going down. But double up. Um, and he's right, dead right. Whether Whether clients have the courage to follow through with those that, that approach uh, we'll have to see it is more likely to come on the on the digital side of the equation because even you know all the forecasts now which have been taken down still show digital growing this year even after the corrections on GDP and spending still show uh, digital growing at 10 to 15 percent. Um, so, you know, if we can grow at 25% plus, which we're saying we can, we're a small factor in the market and we should be able to do that. But that's even now. So, and traditional will be down, will be 0 to 5%. Yeah. So that's where you get, you know, your averages of 7 or 8%. If roughly half the market is more, it's more than half the market is digital. But if roughly half the market is analog, that's at zero to five and the other half is at 10 to 15 you know the average is going to be about eight I mean the irony about that is the um, media groups are talking about eight percent and, and the actual uh, you know uh, holding companies are talking about growing at five to six which is a little bit odd you know you have, you have your most important subsidiary telling the market you should be growing at 300 basis points greater than you're telling the market which would probably make the market even more disingenuous today than it was because you know whatever you say to the market they don't believe it all the analysts and investors think there's going to be a recession or there's a high probability of a recession and that that you know growth rates of even five to six percent by the holding companies uh, are just not accurate the, you, you kind of speak about these whoppers and the, the opportunities that yeah. kind of come out of that. Do you, can it be difficult to sort of push what the, the, I guess, the creative proposition is when a lot of the work is actually under NDAs and stuff that you can potentially no. talk about sometimes? No. no, we can't talk about it to you, but, <laughs> but that's not the object. No, no, no. I mean, when you look at um, of our top eight clients, three-year NDA, that's it. But no, no, not, not, not at all. I, think that, I mean, in a way, that 
actually that's probably an advantage because you know if most of your work is so important that it should be NDA'd and it's secret it's a good thing it's a good thing it sort of indicates it probably has higher value than, than, than you know, shooting your mouth off of it and um, you, you said, kind of going back to a, a point that you touched on just before, you, I think in 2015 you said that in terms of media and creativity and integration that the toothpaste was out of the, the package. Do you think it's possible to put it back in? I mean, so much of what you are doing now is integrated. Do you mean for others or for, for ourselves? For others and then it's I guess... It's tough to, I mean, even for us it's tough to do. I mean, you have a bunch of entrepreneurs who, you know, each have views on their own brands but I mean with, with us it, there is no duplicity you know we're, we're upfront about it and they say that we say you know one of our four basic pillars and principles is around unitary structure and so it's not like you know Dentsu who you know, you're in a relationship with Dentsu for five or six years and then they reverse direction if you like or they change direction yeah. they may be going in the right way but they change direction so it's not what you bought into I mean the old deal was you know you you retain your independence and your identity and we'll we'll do the admin that was the old deal the new deal is no you become well, from our point of view is you become part of one operation yeah. so that we can make available 9,000 people to at least in theory in 32 countries to, to to you for the work that as a client you need us to do so there's no duplicity about it there's no um, change of direction we're very clear but that doesn't by the way eliminate the difficulty of doing it. it's not easy if you built a brand you know you started in a garage you started in an abasement you know you you, you obviously I uh, you're tied to things and you identify with things and they're important to you so I wouldn't underestimate the difficulty of doing it. The, the problem the holding company says is that there is limited integration. They talk about it, but then there's a, a ship fight you know, between the, the verticals. And when people talk about simplification, they're not simplifying it. They're making it more difficult because what you do is you make the verticals more powerful. And so the barons or the baronesses fight with one another you know, they, they, there's a unified purpose to win the business and then there's a, a disunified purpose to show who's to, to, to get as much as you can of whatever is there and you can only achieve that I think the, the harmony when you get to one but getting to one is very difficult I wouldn't underestimate the difficulty even if you have a you know, we don't have earn outs which fragments we try and bring everything together as quickly as possible, but it's not easy. Yeah. You, I guess, a, a big strategy so far has been quite bullish on um, M and A's, and I guess having that clear those M, clear. M rather than A. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you think that will continue now, or are you going to kind of focus no, we, on organic got, growth at this one point? Other thing sort of lined up um, at pre-delay pricing, as we call it. Um, our model is 50-50 cash and shares um, no we'll continue to look at opportunities There's, there remains a lot of inbound and a lot of outbound we're looking at a lot of things but you know frankly I mean I think valuations in the list in the in the private sector have to come back 
Valuations in the listed sector have come down sharply. Uh, it, it, it takes time for the private sector to adjust, but they do adjust. Um, you know, the VC sector has adjusted a bit, but there's more to go. The private equity sector is adjusting, but there's more to go. And um, you know, kind of speaking about how things will slow down, potential recession, all these things that are going on. Where do you? Where do you see those opportunities in the next 18 months? It, which opportunities? The, the, you mean deal opportunities? Well, just for you and for to continue that growth the, that you're talking about. Well, let's be quite clear. If the industry is growing at 10 to 15, if Michael Nathanson, for example, is right, and it's you know rather than growing at 15 to 20, it's going to grow at 10 to 15, and it's going to grow at 10 to 15 between now and 2025. And advertising in proportion of GDP is going to go from one percent to one and a half percent, driven by digital because traditional is going to be flat. If he's right, there's enough growth. You know, you forget about deals. There's enough growth organically, and we're committed to growing at 25. There's enough growth organically to get there, uh, and there's enough to focus on. So, one of the answers to your question can be that at a time like this, it's probably better to focus on organic growth. Um, but that doesn't mean that we won't look at uh, other stuff, and there will there will be there will be significant opportunities because uh, private equity last year raised a lot of money, so they're still going to be around. Uh, but valuations, I think, have, have I think we noticed there's a hesitancy in the P market and the VC market at the moment. I mean, deals are not getting done. Some of the private equity deals that involve raising debt. You, know, you see it, is it Boots and Walgreens? You see yeah. a bit of uh, uh, ink around that, you know, as to what they're, what they're going, going to do or not going to do. So, uh, yeah, I think probably the pace of M&A will, it's got less in the last few months. People are taking longer time over decisions. Uh, the funding you know, is, is more difficult from a debt point of view. So, yeah, but we'll see. You spoke about um, the Zelensky address earlier on and um, your former company this week, WPP, announced that they're partnering with the Ukrainian government for the recovery. What kind of role do you think that marketing and tech services have to play well, in Zelensky this? Zelensky laid it out. I mean, you know, he, I think it was with uh, a group of Ukrainian creatives yeah. and, and agencies. Um, and they do have a role, but I, you know, I have to say that if you think about it from a client point of view, um, the agenda from a geographic point of view is probably going to be primarily around North and South America, uh, primarily around the Middle East and maybe parts of Africa, primarily around Asia, maybe question mark China because of Taiwan, but, but certainly other parts of Asia, uh, India as an alternative, if you like, from a supply chain point of view and tech point of view, because they're very strong tech technologically and creatively they're strong too. So uh, India, Vietnam, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, you know, not forgetting the traditional markets like Japan, Australia, New Zealand. But so, so there are uh, the Philippines, I mean, Bangladesh, Cambodia, I mean, there's, there's lots. So there's those, but Europe, you know, there is, you know, you see the hedge funds shorting, you know, Dalio shorting, uh, you know, doubling, doubling down, 
literally, on European companies. So the prospects for Europe are going to be tough. Um, and you know, I don't, I, the, the reinvestment and rebuilding of the Ukraine is going to be an institutional uh, challenge. So it's getting the World Bank and the IFC and, and, and the banks and countries and governments, Western governments, to invest again in Central Eastern Europe. And I think you know, the biggest problem is that the war sadly looks as though it's going to drag on. Um, and even if there was a good peace or a bad peace, as people describe it, um, you know, does that mean that Russia will, uh, or President Putin will, will limit his ambitions? You know, he's made his ambitions quite clear, and it may be that you know there's there's a, as we saw after the Crimea, in 2014, there's a period of recouping, but then a continuation of policy. So, absent regime change and a regime in Russia that is more let me say, sort of constructive, at least from our point of view. They, they don't see it that way, but from our point of view, I, I, I don't see how things, it's going to be very difficult uh, in Central and Eastern Europe. And um, just finally, Sir Martin, I think your presentation yesterday and I think that the presence of Media Monks and S4 this week has shown that obviously top of your game and everything's going in the right direction. Is there... I guess a long-term succession strategy there for you or a plan? There's plenty of talent in the company. Leave it at that. <laughs> plenty of talent. Well, I appreciate you joining me Thanks today. Very I very much appreciate you making the time. Thank you. Thanks very much. Brilliant. That is it for another week on the Mumbrella Cast. Thank you for tuning in once again. Please make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and check out the website for all the content and updates you need. Thanks, E. Kalila. Thank you. Thanks, Cal. That's probably my favorite podcast of all time. <laughs> and you, Kalila? <laughs> uh, maybe top five. <laughs> Brilliant. And thanks again to Sir Martin, Catherine and Lisa. See you next week.